Welcome to Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. Throughout his career, Jim Lang has made it a priority to provide his clients, readers, and friends with useful, cutting-edge information, as well as peer-reviewed financial and tax planning strategies, so that they can make the most educated decisions and really get the most out of what they've got. We hope you enjoy the following special read broadcast from the Lang Vault. Please stay with us until the end so you don't miss more information on how we can help you protect your wealth and ensure your family's financial security for the next generation. And now, Jim Lang. Thanks so much, everyone. And um, just to kind of footstomp Larry's recommendation of his latest book, Your Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement, I had the opportunity to read that this summer. And as somebody who is more of a details person in the social sciences area or like macroeconomics at best, um, I really found it really useful. And, uh, and I think that it actually does, like he said, go through a lot of the steps that a, an advisor should go through with uh, with their client, but I, I suspect that he's right, that uh, that doesn't happen enough. So I definitely think that that is a great book. And I don't know, Brian put a link to reducing the risk of uh, black swans in the chat, but maybe we could also add one uh, for the your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement second edition. Um, now, the next question is also from the live room. I believe it's from anonymous attendee, but I wanted Adam to uh, answer first. And then if uh, Jim and Larry have anything they'd like to add, that'd be great. Um, anonymous attendee asked, I believe you are fans of tilting one's portfolio towards small cap value funds. Would that recommendation extend to a small cap index fund such as Vanguard's or is there less of an expected premium there? Uh, I would say it, it could extend, but we're generally fans of those funds that exhibit those tilts. And I think Larry touched on this sooner. Uh, what we do is look at the funds that exhibit those tilts to the premiums that we want. So by way of directional example, and I know Larry can, can uh, put a finer tip on this, I believe the PE ratio uh, of a Vanguard fund might be 30 to 50% higher than a Bridgeway fund. And maybe the market cap, as Larry alluded to earlier, of the Vanguard fund might be 4X than the Bridgeway fund. And the DFA small cap fund that we like is somewhere in between those two. So could we? Yes. Would we? We prefer not to. And I think I saw a question uh, in the live chat. Someone asked about the performance of that Bridgeway fund. Now, remember, we are not picking funds based on past performance, if you will. And so if you looked at that Bridgeway fund, again, we're not married to it. It's just one of the preferred funds. If you look at that performance compared to that Vanguard small cap fund, you would see the results you would expect to see because of the tilt into large and growth. That Vanguard fund performed much better, say in the last 10 years, up until last year, when small cap value dramatically outperformed that because the small cap asset class rotated out. Larry, you wanna expand on that? Yeah, sure, happy to do that. Uh, so what we look at uh, are funds, one, we wanna be, 
that are uh, in, invested in funds that are what we would call the term passively managed. Uh, what that means is there's no individual stock selection going on and there is um, no market timing going on as well. Uh, so all index funds like the ones run by Vanguard uh, do that. But we want to gain access to deeper exposures to these premiums of small and value in this case. Uh, so the, the way you get that is to own a fund that doesn't invest in a popular index, uh, but creates its own uh, universe, if you will, fund construction rules based upon more academic definitions of uh, that. Uh, asset class. So let me give you an example. That's what I'm pulling up right now to give you a good example. Today, if you invested in Vanguard's small cap value index fund, you would have a fund, you might just jot this down uh, uh, for yourselves, that has a PE ratio of 12.5. The Bridgeway fund has a PE ratio of 9.3. So Vanguard's funds, in terms of cheapness, if you will, is about one third less cheap. Uh, and the evidence historically is that over the long term, the lower the PEs, the higher the risk perception is. That's why they trade at low PEs. Um, uh, and the higher the expected return. Of course, you're not guaranteed that return in the same way you're not guaranteed that return with stocks. Uh, the price to book ratio of Vanguard small value stock is 1.8. It's only 1.2 for Bridgeways fund. So then if we look at the market cap, and we know historically small cap stocks, the smaller the market cap, the higher the return, which is logical. Uh, because they're riskier companies. Vanguard's fund today is close to $6 billion. I wouldn't even call that small cap. Uh, Bridgeway's fund is $1.3 billion. Now, what, here's what happens, and this is really an important point for people to understand. Both funds are really well run. They're, it's not that one is per se better than the other. Uh, but they provide different resource uh, access to these exposures. Uh, so what you would expect to happen literally works virtually every year in this way. Uh, it's what you should expect. When small and value outperforms, which is what we would expect in the longest term, uh, then Bridgeway's fund, we should expect to outperform because it owns more of those small value stocks. On the other hand, when large and growth stocks outperform, we would expect the Bridgeway fund to do worse because it owns even more of the underperformers than the, than the Vanguard fund. So you might think of it this way. In a year when the S&P 500, with is more, which is more large growth oriented, outperforms like it did in years 17, 18, 19, and 20, then you would expect the Vanguard fund to do worse than the S&P, but 
Bridgeway to do even worse. In years like last year, 2016, 2013, every year from 2000 to 07, uh, small in value outperformed by wide margins. And you would expect then the Bridgeway fund to do much better and Vanguard to come in second. And of course the S&P worse. So I'll give you a, an example right now. Uh, the last year, the S&P, I think, was up uh, 26, 27 percent. The Bridgeway Fund was up 48 uh, percent. And let's take a quick look. We could see what the Vanguard Fund was up. Uh, and we'll let me take one second here. Uh, and while I'm pulling that up, uh, we can say this year, the same thing is happening. Uh, the S&P is really underperformed. Uh, it was down like, I think, 8% or something like that as of uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, let's see, here we go. The Bridgeway Fund is down 2% this year. Vanguard is down 5 both better than the S&P, but the best one is Bridgeway. Last year, I told you uh, the Bridgeway fund was up 47 or 48%, the Vanguard fund up 28%. This works perfectly every year. And since we believe in the long term that small value will outperform, we want the fund that has the most exposure to those factors. And that's why we prefer the Bridgeway fund. So hopefully that answers your question. They're both well-run funds. We can't foresee the future, but we wanna put our odds in favor of us because over the long term, in one year period, small value outperforms about two thirds of the time. By five years, it's more like 80% and 10 years, it's more like 90%. But that of course, isn't a guarantee. It's never 100%, but the same is true of stocks. The S&P beats T-bills only about two thirds of the time. It beats them maybe 80% at five years and 90% at 10, but even at 10 years, it underperforms sometimes. So that's what's really important, choosing the vehicle that you are able to stick with, because even though we believe the Bridgeway Fund is likely to outperform over the long term, if you're gonna panic and sell because it underperformed in 17, 18, 19, and 20, then you sell after four years because you think that's a long enough time. That's simply not true. Even a decade isn't enough. Then you miss out on the great returns and the difference in 2021 and 2022 so far. The S&P, for example, underperformed T-bills for 13 years from 2000 to 12. Do you give up on stocks? I would hope not. Uh, one final comment on that. Vanguard has a great tool that we use to help uh, compare funds. The Bridgeway Fund has 2x the amount in that small cap value Morningstar box. And I know most everybody out here knows the Morningstar grid, lower left corner, small cap value. The Bridgeway Fund has 2x the Vanguard small cap fund. But I ask a quick question because you talked about evidence-based investing and we've spent a bunch of time on, let's say, the alternative investments. And then we talked about Bridgeway. 
Um, but still the majority of the portfolio that people are going to get from Buckingham is most likely going to be dimensional fund advisor type funds. Um, what is, if, is there a conceptual difference and particularly for professors who are very evidence-based um, peer review um, and also the history of the funds coming from academics as opposed to Wall Street or Main Street. Do either of you have some opinions on, let's say, you know, that picture? Yeah, well, uh, I, I love this. This is the perfect group to be talking with about this. I often use the example, uh, Jim, uh, well, let's use this analogy. Maybe I will play a little um, uh, uh, Q&A here with you. So, Jim, you're not feeling well for a couple of days and then it drags on. It's a week, 10 days. Finally, you decide you better go see a doctor uh, and you do that and you tell the doctor what's wrong. He orders a battery of tests, calls you back in, sits down and says, Jim, here are the results of the test. Turns around and pulls out a copy of Reader's Digest and Men's Health <laughs> and says, Jim, based on my reading, of the literature, here's what I think the problem is, and here's the recommended treatment. How are you feeling? Uh, not, not so well, thanks. Yeah. So being an intelligent person, you decide you better uh, get a second opinion. This time you go to another doctor. This time she puts you through. Similar battery of tests, calls you in, tells you the results, turns around and pulls out a copy of New England Journal of Medicine, and says, based on my, upon my reading of the literature, this is the odds, you know, there's a 70% chance this is the problem. We're going to treat it this way. And if that turns out not to work, the other 30% is, you know, here's the solution and we'll treat it that way. How are you feeling now? Well, I'm feeling a lot better than the Reader's Digest. Right. So in our world, you know, Barron's, uh, CNBC, uh, things like that, people's opinions you know, are the equivalent of that Reader's Digest and Men's Health. Uh, and the equivalent of the New England Journal of Medicine are publications like the Journal of Finance and Journal of Portfolio Management. And 100% of the recommendations we make are in terms of investing is based upon the peer-reviewed academic literature providing the evidence and what is likely to be the strategy to give you the best odds of success. All of the vehicles we use <clears throat> invest based upon peer-reviewed academic research, run the people at the company who are managing the money, are all academics trained in this field. Uh, what I'm really proud of is not only do we follow the literature, but myself and other members of my team have had articles published in peer-reviewed journals. And Jared Kaiser, our chief investment officer, was actually co-author of a paper awarded by the very prestigious Journal of Portfolio Management, best paper of the year. We used to use exclusively dimensional funds because they were the only fund family that used the academic research to create superior vehicles to pure indexing. Indexing is a good strategy. If you do it, you're over the long term likely to outperform 
90% of professionals, that's what the data shows, who are trying to pick stocks and beat the market. But indexing has some negatives, which I've written about in my books. Happy to go into it if people want. But we believe the evidence shows clearly there are simple strategies that can be improved upon them. And by using academic definitions like we described, you gain greater exposure to these factors like small and value that the evidence shows are likely to provide higher returns in the long term. Why have we moved away from only dimensional? Because competition has arrived and lots of other fund families are now using that same academic research, hiring top academics. We use, for example, as a fund family called Avantis, their research team was basically lifted right out of dimensional. Their chief investment officer had retired, stayed that way for a few years, was lured back, and he brought with him some of the team. They provide a great suite of ETFs we've begun to implement. Bridgeway is run by academics, and those are the three main fund families, plus some of Vanguard's funds we also use, certainly in cases of tax loss harvesting, but their total market fund for those people who want that type of exposure, we would incorporate in our models. We have no incentive to use anybody's funds. We don't get paid anything by anybody. Our only person who pays us are our clients. And I'll add this, we put our money where our mouth is. Every one of us invests our own money in exactly the same vehicles we recommend. And I, in my books, I recommend to people that you should never invest with anyone who isn't willing to show you that they are investing in the very same vehicles. They may have a very different asset allocation because they have a different ability, willingness, and need to take risk, but they should be in the same vehicles. And our model portfolios include all of the funds that we offer our employees in our 401k plans. And, and, and by the way, that's the way I'm invested. But the, one of the things I was thinking is you were saying some of the problems with Vanguard is that they're so big that they literally can't invest in some of these, let's call it more opportunistic funds that do things that Vanguard literally couldn't effectively invest in. But if you're a small, let's say financial firm, you might not have the bandwidth to invest in as many firms as Buckingham is looking at. Would you say that Buckingham is maybe in a sweet spot in terms of size of the market? It's you know, not exactly than, the, than Vanguard, but bigger than, say, a much smaller group. It's not exactly the right way to think about it, Jim, because you could now, with computers, you could run a passive strategy. I'll use the word systematic. Systematic means you define your universe of here, I'm going to buy all stocks, I'll make this up, who have market caps under a billion. PEs under 12 and price the book um, uh, below this level. Or we're going to buy stocks in the bottom 5% by market cap and the bottom the 20% cheapest stocks. Then you hit the button and the computer connect do all the trading even for you. Uh, so you don't need a huge team of people anymore. You need the evidence you know, to construct the funds properly. But your point is actually really right. One reason we moved away from, at least in some of the cases, uh, from dimensional is dimensional became too successful. Uh, 
when I started working with them, they had 22 or 25 billion of assets under management. Today, I think it's something like 600 billion. And they have so much money come in because of the success of their funds that their small cap funds started to drift a little bit and owned a little bit larger stocks, losing access to some of that premium. So we approached the team at Bridgeway who we liked in terms of their research and they were a retail fund and we didn't want to invest anyone that took retail money that was hot. And the reason you don't want that is when you're investing in small stocks and if the market crashes and they panic and sell, their panic and sell will impose very high trading costs as you're trying to sell now the fund that's the force sell stocks into a market with no liquidity, and it will also force realization of gains. So we said, if you would work with us, we'll create a fund that looks like the way DFA fund used to look like, and maybe even a little smaller, but you have to limit it to only our company having access so it won't grow so big. And we felt that fund could manage up to 5 billion, and we could quickly give them a billion. And within a year, we did that. And now the fund is, I don't know, close to $2 billion. Okay. So they have a team of about, I don't know, 20 researchers and, you know, and portfolio managers, not the 100 or whatever dimensional has. They're a big enough player uh, in there. So that's an example of where you can get too big. Vanguard would never play in that space because they'd have too much demand. They'd have to close the fund or change the metrics to allow them to keep taking money. And that's a choice DFA did over time. They changed the metrics a bit, and that's why we sought another player. Did that happen with Berkshire Hathaway at all? Well, uh, Berkshire, you know, is a little different situation, but Berkshire now is so big, it can't really buy a lot of small stocks. They have to play in a different universe that may have affected to some degree Buffett's ability to beat the market. Remember, with, with stocks anyway, scale is a diseconomy. It may allow you to lower fees. That's what Vanguard has done. That's great for investors. But it, you, you then can't play in these smaller spaces where the largest premiums are. It doesn't matter where you look in the world, uh, countries or call it factors, so the smallest stocks have had the highest returns, whether we're looking at growth stock, uh, sorry, value stocks, quality stocks, momentum stocks, whatever. The premiums have been the largest and the smallest stocks. So you can't you know, scale up too much because then you have to move away from those smallest stocks and you lose access to some of that premium. So that's part of our job in the investment policy committee is to constantly be evaluating which are the best vehicles for our clients. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. If you've discovered the answers to your questions and would like to schedule an appointment with Jim, please call our offices at 1-800-387-1129. That number again, 1-800-387-1129. Or if you would like to attend one of Jim's upcoming webinars, go to paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinars. 
That address again is paytaxeslater.com forward slash 2020 webinars. That's 2020 webinars.